0: You're listening to golf. Yeah, your masterclass in the lives, lessons and aspirations of people who've built successful businesses and rewarding careers based on their love for the game of golf. Whether it's the obstacles they faced, the success they've achieved or advice they offer golf. Yeah. Provides the motivation and blueprint to convert your passion for golf into a full or part-time endeavor. Or maybe you just enjoy hearing stories from people who know a hell of a lot about the game. Either way, Let's start exploring the business side of golf with your host, Gordon Andrew.
1: I've interviewed no one on this podcast who's been involved in as many golf related careers and business ventures as David Glenn's. He's just about done it all. So, allow me to rattle off just a few things Dave's accomplished over the past 50 years. As a member of the University of Oregon golf team, he was voted second team All American. He spent six years playing on the PGA Tour. His teaching career, where he often averaged more than 1,000 lessons a year, included stints teaching at Legendary Wingfoot Golf Club and as head pro for 10 years at Morris County Golf Club. He opened and ran the David Glenns Golf Academy, offering golf schools and private lessons at the Crystal Springs Resort in New Jersey. David's given golf lessons to more than 100 PGA, LPGA, and PGA Senior Tour professional players as well as as hundreds of mini-tour players and club professionals. He was a New Jersey PGA Player of the Year eight times, winner of 14 New Jersey PGA titles, two Met Open championships. He was voted Player of the Decade in the 1980s and was also voted into the New Jersey PGA Hall of Fame. In 1998, the PGA of America voted him National PGA Teacher of the Year He's been honored by Golf Magazine as a top 100 teacher and by Golf Digest as a top 50 teacher. And just last month, he received Golf Magazine lifetime achievement recognition. If I get any of these wrong, Dave, I apologize. This is like announcing Tiger Woods on the first tee on day one of a major tournament. Your list is just too long. And finally, Dave's crowning achievement is the design and construction of Black Oak Golf Club in Long Valley, New Jersey which has been recognized as one of the finest courses in the Northeast. And I will mention it's the first and perhaps only New Jersey course designated as a certified signatory sanctuary by the Audubon International. And before Dave starts speaking, in the interest of full disclosure, I am a uh, recently joined member of Black Oak Golf Club and a student of Dave, who continues to be confounded by my inability to swing through the ball. So, Dave, finally, welcome to golf, yeah.
2: Well, I'm glad to be here, Gordon.
1: Okay. You have a long list of accomplishments. If I got any of them wrong, I apologize. Do you want to correct any of them or add to any of them before we... No,
2: into- I mean, you get to be my age. It's, I've forgotten some of what you mentioned.
1: <laughs> okay. Well, listen, we're the same age, Dave, so I feel your pain. I like to start with backstory in terms of, you know, where you grew up, family life, what sparked your interest in golf... Who taught you to play, those kinds of issues?
2: Yeah, well, I started as a young junior. Both my parents played. My mom actually was a very good player. She was about a four handicap. Wow. So uh, even as I got a little older, uh, I played her in a few matches. And there was a little problem one time on the eighth green where I had about a one and a half footer with a steep side outbreak, break. And I asked her if it was good. And she said, no, put it. And I missed, and I raised the putter and started toward and, yeah, that caused me some serious <laughs> problems.
1: <laughs> okay. So did you belong to a club? Were you a country club brat growing up? Well,
2: it was a little nine-hole. Okay. It was a country club, but it was kind of every man's country club.
1: Okay. Got it. So your parents basically taught you how to play?
2: Well, you know, we had actually the professional there was a Very good teacher and ran a strong junior program. There were a number of, in fact, with everything I accomplished, winning the state high school championship when I was a sophomore, winning the boys division of the state juniors, I never won the junior club championship at this nine-hole course, and I never won the club championship, even though I won the Oregon Amateur. (laughs) Okay. So, So there were a lot of good players at this course.
1: Oh, really? Okay.
2: Yeah, actually, one fella who'd play kind of weekly would shoot par or better every time he played, and then they had the U.S. amateur coming to Pebble Beach. He decided to try and qualify. He qualified, and he was, I think, two up with three to play in the semifinals, where he would have played Nicholas in the finals. Wow. Yeah. So uh, his name was Dick Hanan.
1: So where in Oregon did you grow up? What part?
2: I grew up in Coquille. The golf course was. It's called Coos Country Club. It was about two miles out of Coos Bay, Oregon.
1: Okay. Were you a decent student, given the fact that you spent a lot of time playing golf?
2: Yeah, I was salutatorian in my high school class. Okay. That's quite an accomplishment. So- well, there were only three people in the class. <laughs> okay. No, actually, there were a little over 100, but it was a small school. Okay. Great. I was a good shooting guard in basketball, though. I had I did hit 90% from the line my senior year.
1: Wow. Okay. So you were an athlete, not just good in golf. So, Who were your uh, golf heroes during those days? Who did you follow on the tour? That-
2: oh, Arnold Palmer would have been my favorite. Yeah. Yeah. We used to, you know, have putting contests all the time and I'd be Palmer and I'd pick up a cigarette butt and have it in my mouth and.
1: That's a subject I wasn't going to raise because you're still a smoker, aren't you? Uh,
2: you know, I quit and start and quit and start.
1: Got it. But you've lived this long, so it hasn't killed you yet. So how'd you end up at the University of Oregon?
2: Well, actually, initially, I went to the University of Houston my freshman year. Oh. And it was a long drive back from Houston to Oregon. When I hit the Oregon border, it In June, it was about 80 degrees, crystal clear sky, driving through these pine trees. And I said, yeah, I'm done with Houston.
1: Yeah, what am I doing in Texas? Right, exactly.
2: Yeah, so uh, Oregon was the logical place.
1: Okay. Were you on the golf team? Did you get recruited on the golf team at University of Houston?
2: Yes, that was er early on. Way different than today, but I was contacted probably in October and pretty much committed right away.
1: Okay. So and then you were on the University of Oregon golf team. Right. Okay. You went right from college to the PGA Tour, is that correct? Yes. Okay. What was that experience like, getting qualified?
2: Well, kind of interesting in that we had two qualifying and We had a regional. I played well in that. I don't know if I finished first or second, and then went to national. We played six rounds at PGA National, which is now called Ballon Isles. And I know I shot 74, 75, 80 and was kind of out of it and then finished with 72, 72, 69 to make it by a couple shots. Wow. So the last round was especially interesting. I kind of knew what I had to shoot. And I know I chipped in for birdie on a fourth or fifth hole and then just kind of steeled my mind to, okay, I'm just getting fairways and greens the rest of the way, and pretty much that's what I did, made a couple more birdies and qualified for the tour. Yeah,
1: and your first time around. Yes. Okay. What did your parents think about that? Were they enthusiastic about you joining the tour?
2: Yeah, they were obviously excited.
1: Can you talk a little bit about life on the tour, the good parts, the bad parts? You did that for, what, six
2: years? Yeah, kind of different then. We only had the top 60 exempt, so... I really, being as young as I was, I didn't know better. I mean, I played virtually every week. On So I left my parents' house the day after Christmas and didn't get back until my birthday, December 15th, the following year. Wow. So I didn't pace myself real well as far as managing tournaments. But you, you didn't know what tournaments you were in, so you'd try and qualify on Monday and and if you didn't, there were some secondary events on on the schedule to some extent. And yeah, the first one I qualified for finally was in Florida at the Jackie Gleason. Who
1: were the big players at that when you were on the tour at that time?
2: Well, it would have been Nicholas, Palmer, Weiskopf, Trevino. Actually, oh. the first tournament I made the cut in, Trevino, I think he was just coming back from a back injury, but third round I was paired with Trevino and I believe David Graham, I was kind of nervous on the first tee. So, you know, I'm just going, just go easy. Just try and meet the ball. Yeah. It's amazing when you do that, hit the center of the face, and I hit it about 50 yards by both those guys. <laughs> you know, you you any- try and hit it hard and it just doesn't go.
1: Yeah. Do you have any good Trevino stories or any stories you want to share now
2: that most of those guys aren't around anymore? You know, when you're playing in a tournament, yeah. It, you know, you get so involved in your own game that, you know, you really don't converse a lot with other players. I was fortunate to play with Trevino. I played with Palmer a few times, never did play with Nicholas.
1: What was Palmer like? Did you get to talk to him at all?
2: Well, yeah. I mean, he was friendly. I still remember uh, when I made the cut as a club pro at the PGA in Atlanta, and I'm on the range hitting golf balls and. Arnold walks on. He goes, "Hey, there's David Glenn, the only guy with more gray hair than than me."
1: <laughs> so he knew who you were. He knew how to bust your chops. So yeah, okay. Now you traveled mostly by what? By plane or car?
2: No, mostly by yeah. car.
1: By car. Okay. Yeah, some
2: plane um, flights, but yeah, I needed a car for have all my stuff in it.
1: Okay. Now, were you married when you were on the tour?
2: I got married in. Uh, Geez, let me think. In 1975, so I played a few years before getting married.
1: Okay. Did you meet your wife on the tour, or did you know her before that? or?
2: No, met her at Doral, actually.
1: Oh, okay. Is it tough being married and being on the tour at the same time, especially if you're newlywed?
2: Originally, I was on the road by myself, and then she joined me. And, and then before you know it, we had a dog and a cat traveling with us and uh, <laughs> had a crock pot we'd cook in the room, so... Yeah, she was supportive. She never caddied for you, did she? Once. Oh, once. Okay. Yeah, it was in kind of a unique story. It was in the uh, this big pro-am before the start of the season. That year, it was sponsored by Lynx. But, you know, a, a lot of tour players, probably 30 tour players, Johnny Miller, Marquez who won the Players' Championship. And I got playing really well. And I remember with nine holes to play – I had a nine shot lead. Wow. So it's people don't understand when you have a big lead, it almost makes it harder. Yeah. Because I mean, I've won the tournament. All I can do now is lose it.
1: Exactly.
2: And I made a couple pars and then I went three putt, three putt, three putt. Oh jeez. Three putt, three putt. I was leaking oil like crazy and then I made a twenty footer on seventeen. And found out I had a five-shot lead, so I was able to bring it home.
1: Wow. Well, that's great. Is that the toughest part about being on the tour, kind of the head game?
2: Oh, yeah. No question. I mean, the whole thing at that level becomes a game of the mind more than the physical. Did you have a swing coach at the time? or Not so much. I had the golf pro that Al Williams, back at the little club I grew up in. He helped me, and then I took some lessons from Johnny Revolta. He was very good and helped me. And then later, I worked with Bob Toskey.
1: Oh, really? Okay.
2: Bob was great. After I quit playing the tour, I I got involved a little bit with Golf Digest Schools and kind of shadowed Bob for, you know, a couple five-day schools. And that really uh, got my thirst for teaching.
1: Yeah. Is he still around?
2: He was last year.
1: Oh, okay. (laughs) Anybody could be gone given what's going on in the past 12 months. Are there any tour pros that you still stay in touch with now?
2: I'd have to say no. Every once in a while you run into somebody, you know, Peter Jacobson I've run into several times. He actually played really after I left Oregon and after I left the tour, but, you know, he's always been friendly. In fact, when I qualified for the British Open, you know, he... I ran into him, and he asked to play a practice round and with himself and Bernhard Langer. That was fun. And then when I qualified for the PGA and Cherry Hill in Denver, uh, again, Peter set up a game with himself and Sebi.
1: Okay. Do pros have side bets either, you know, well, certainly not during the tour events, but does a lot of betting go on
2: when plow- Um There were certain guys who like to bet. Ray Floyd, Lanny Watkins, kind of when I was playing, most of the guys, not so much.
1: Okay. Who were you most impressed with, not just as a player, but as an individual during your years on the tour?
2: Wow. I guess between name players, it would have been Gary Player or Trevino. Really? Yeah.
1: I'm surprised you would name Player because he's been characterized as somewhat cantankerous.
2: (laughs) Well, my first exposure to him, I'd never met him and. We'd finished playing Hartford. There was a plane flight to Columbus, Georgia. That was all a player's flight. I'm on the plane, and he walks by and stops and says, Hi, Dave, I see you've been doing real well this year. Ah, I could have knocked me over with a feather. Yeah, Yeah. You know, so that was my first exposure to him and subsequently ran into him a few times. He was always very friendly. Chichi Rodriguez, he was a character, but... Hell of a pool player, shot some pool with him.
1: Now, when you played Hartford, was it the Insurance City Open then, or was it uh, Travelers at that
2: point? No, it was just called the Greater Hartford Open.
1: Okay. Was it at Weathersfield
2: Country Club? Yes. Or okay. Yeah, Weathersfield.
1: Okay. My dad used to take me to that, and Chichi Rodriguez used to uh, play that with a diamond-studded putter and have a guard accompany him. Were you playing during that?
2: I don't remember that, but...
1: Yeah, it was just a publicity... But it ended up, I mean, he always had a huge crowd following him as a result because he was such a character, you know. So and just to, to finish up on the tour discussion, how different is life on the tour today, do you think, than it was back when you played?
2: Well, I mean, the money is so much different. And, you know, with a top 125 exempt, and you pretty much have to make a million dollars official to stay in the top 125. And it's it's a lot deeper talent level-wise across the board through 125 and even beyond.
1: Yeah. So it's tougher to qualify as well, I would imagine.
2: Well, yeah. I mean, they don't have a tour qualifying anymore. You pretty much have to go through the web.com to get onto the PGA Tour.
1: So what drove your decision to leave? And did you ever look back and regret not sticking it out?
2: No, I was pretty burned out. And I really wrote down on a piece of paper some goals I had, My life, one side was continue playing golf, the other was to go into the club professional side, started writing down things and the one list was twice as long. So I just said, Okay, I'm done.
1: Okay. How old were you at that point?
2: I must have been twenty eight.
1: Twenty eight. Okay. So talk about the transition. So you go from the PGA tour to Wingfoot. Were you kind of a celebrity as a result of that coming off the tour?
2: No wouldn't have really been known that much. Tom Neaporty had just gotten the job at Wingfoot. Claude Harmon had retired. Okay. And I knew Tom a little bit from the tour. So, you know, I called him weekly until he got tired of hearing from me and okay. finally said, okay, you can have the job.
1: Okay. That's interesting because that says something about your character. Do you tend to be like that in most things where you're tenacious and, you know? <laughs>
2: uh, that was probably more extreme than usual, but yeah, I'd say I've always been kind of a problem solver.
1: So you played Wingfoot many times, I would imagine. What? I've played it a couple times. Tell me why you think it's such a special course. It's well,
2: yeah, first of all, uh, House is my favorite golf course architect. But the west course at Wingfoot is just, it's all golf. It's right there in front of you. There aren't penalty shots. There's like one out of bounds on four. It's possible to hit it out, but really hard. And the only water is on 15. Actually, behind six green and at the bottom of the fairway on 15 really doesn't come into play. Yeah. So it's just, you got to hit golf shot after golf shot. The greens require strong iron play. You got to be a terrific bunker player.
1: Yeah. Have you played Brooklawn in Connecticut, which is an old? Tillinghouse course?
2: No, I had not. And okay. yeah, they just finished the women's senior open there.
1: Yeah. It was fun for me to watch. I was a member there for a number of years and watching those women play so well on a course that <laughs> killed me. Uh, it's just fun to watch a, a tournament on a course that you've played, you know, because you really appreciate, I think, better than, you know.
2: Well, I think more. that's one thing that makes the Masters so watchable because all the holes are familiar to everyone and they almost feel even if they haven't been there they feel like they've been there yeah
1: have you played Augusta
2: no I have not
1: No. Oh, okay so how long were you at Wingfoot three years three years and then you went to Morris County Golf Club being there for a decade
2: right um, Ten years.
1: okay and you were head pro there yes okay I had occasion to play there at a tournament a couple of times I forget the designer of that course the elevated greens
2: Travis I believe
1: yeah, Travis. Yeah. Talk a little bit about your experience here, because I think people confuse it with the Morris County public courses. I don't <laughs> think it has the stature that it should in terms of its reputation. Maybe because of that, people confuse it with the public links.
2: Yeah, it's a terrific old course. And, you know, the green designs there are great. I, I think, you know, it's short, so people think it's going to be easy, but it's just not. Yeah. That it's was a, a good- uh, we played this. Stayed open there in 1984, which I was fortunate to win. And then that was the same year I qualified for the club pro team to compete against Great Britain and Ireland in 84. So the members rented a helicopter for me. So after the tournament, went to Morristown Airport, took a helicopter to Kennedy and hopped on the plane for Scotland and arrived in Scotland No sleep, played a practice round, got a good night's rest and qualified for the British Open. Played 36 holes at Leven Links and shot 67-66 and was low qualifier. So I played in the British at St. Andrews. Like I said, I played with Peter Jacobson and Bernhard Langer, and I'm feeling pretty good about myself. You know, I'm coming off some strong golf. And so here's the British Open, and my tee time the first day is like 5 o'clock p.m.,
1: yeah, at St. Andrews.
2: Yeah, and okay. they're running late, so it's not till like 5.30 when I tee off. I've watched most of the British Open all morning. It's nonstop TV. And anyway, I'm finally on the tee. I put the ball on the ground. I looked down the fairway, and my mind said, this is the British Open. And everything <laughs> in my body started shaking. <laughs> but you couldn't have a more user-friendly tee shot than the first hole.
1: <laughs> yeah. You could put it in the swol and burn on your t-shirt though
2: well you could but I mean you've got more room out there than anywhere I've ever played yeah so how did you do yeah I managed to get it down the fair wing on the green and then you kind of go on and I ended up missing the cut by a shot
1: oh okay
2: and I remember I played with Christy O'Connor jr i thought he was kind of a you know an okay player nothing and then two years later he's leading the British Open i'm I couldn't believe it
1: Maybe you're just having a bad day to when you're playing with them. So you're at Morris County for a decade, and then you decide to start your own golf academy. So what prompted that, and did you have any trepidation? Because then you had to skin in the game financially, right?
2: Yeah. No, I never really thought about it. I left a heck of a job at Morris County, but it was I was so involved in teaching, it just seemed like uh, I wanted to expand that and couldn't really do that at a private club. So uh, I got involved in Crystal Springs. And initially, I was just teaching on the fifth hole at Crystal Springs before they opened the course up. Okay. And then the range was developed and black Bear, And so I had two locations and added teachers. And, you know, we developed the teaching pretty well up there.
1: Now, this was after it was the Playboy Club. Wasn't the Playboy Club? Well, the
2: Playboy Club Club was separate. Oh okay. It was never part of Crystal Springs until, okay. you know, just a few few years ago. Okay. It was Crystal Springs Black Bear, then Bally Owen.
1: Yeah. I've been impressed with Bally Owen, not so much with Black Bear.
2: Yeah. Somehow <laughs> they put my name on as designer of that which I had very little to do with that golf course. Wh-
1: which one? Black Bear? Yeah. Oh, so I just insulted you was that? <laughs>
2: no, not at all. <laughs> <Okay>. You can't <laughs> insult me. Well, I could try.
1: <laughs> okay. So you're there. You have your Golf Academy, Crystal Springs. How long did you do that?
2: 20 years.
1: 20 years. Oh, quite a while. Yeah. Okay. But you had employees working for you. You weren't the only... Well, 10
2: of contractors, but yeah. Oh, okay. I at one point probably had, I don't know, eight instructors.
1: Okay. But you went to Florida in the winter, right? Did you move the school down there off season?
2: No, really, at that point in time, I think I was just doing some golf schools, various locations. One year, I was at the TPC in uh, Scottsdale. We did a couple weeks there, five-day golf schools, and I used Grand Cypress in Orlando a couple times. Okay. Did some at Orange County National.
1: Okay. Okay. I know those courses well, especially Orange County National. I lived in Orlando for a couple of years. They have a great practice facility. I think yeah. one of the best. Not experience. enough
2: targets though. Yeah, right. The targets okay. are too far away and, and space too far out. But uh, yeah, I mean uh, yeah. to have a three hundred and sixty degree range is very unique.
1: Yeah. And they have a really cool par three there too. I don't know if you ever
2: played it, but it, no, I didn't, cool. but I saw and it. I, it looked good.
1: Yeah, it's a nice little course. So let's talk about your teaching method and philosophy. You have a lot of designations, award recognitions. I'm curious to know when PGA and you know, professional golfers come to you, what are some of the reasons that they, are they working on a problem or are you a specialist in a particular area? you know, not like a putting.
2: No, that's become the age of specialization or self-proclaimed specialization has been in the last 10 years probably. yeah. Um, yeah. Feel like I can teach all aspects of the game, but yeah, often it would be their game is not as strong. You find out what their weak shot is, and then look to help them understand what's happening and what the fixes are going to be.
1: Are they tougher to teach than amateurs?
2: No. To change? No, they're uh, much more committed to a direction and have the time to, you know, really work at it.
1: Yeah, I've always wondered why. Uh, pros. I mean, they'll have hot streaks and then they'll just fall off the face of the earth. You never, like you take a, I know Jordan Spieth had said, enjoyed somewhat of a comeback. But for a while there, he was, you know, he was on a tear and then he wasn't playing well at all. I mean, why, how and why does that happen? Is it a head game or they just lose?
2: I'd say every player somewhere between 15 and 25 go through a negative period. And because prior to that, it's like negative experiences just, you know, it's like water off a duck's back. They just ignore them, and then the, it gets to where the negative weighs on them, and then they have to find a way to overcome.
1: Yeah. Okay. Uh, along those lines, my son went to high school with JJ Henry, and his high school career on the golf team was something like fifty-six zero and one. I think he did go to University of Texas, so University of Houston, but he, you know, he's still on the tour. He's won a few things, but I, a couple of things he told my son. One was that. Even if you don't win anything on the tour, most tour professionals can make close to a million dollars just through endorsements and tournaments, you know, pro-ams and that that sort of thing. But I think that I remember him telling my son that, you know, it's one thing to be playing at the college and, and high school level, but you get to the PGA Tour and it's a whole different world because the level of play and quality of play is just so high. And I think it's an awake rude awakening for a lot of these guys, you
2: know. Yeah, certainly going from college to professional in any sport is transition. Some guys make it easily. You've seen that with some young players who have stepped out with sponsor exemptions and you know immediately play well enough to gain their tour card. You know, Victor Hovland, uh, Matthew Wolf, Colin Morikawa. Other guys have to work their way up through the kind of through the ranks, so to speak.
1: Yeah, let's talk about amateur players for a while. I mean, you've literally given tens of thousands of lessons. So, I mean, what can you talk about what the most common swing faults are in in amateur golfers? Do you tend to see the same thing over and over?
2: Yeah, a couple of things. I tend to see amateur players cuz they've heard the left arm should be straight and they should turn their shoulders and so they tend to overturn shoulders and the biggest problem is too much forward advancement of the left arm kind of swinging in a forward direction. And there is validity to the left arm being barred in that it can stretch the backswing. But, you know, it really, the left arm staying stiff is kind of like putting a brake on the club head for most people. We don't see the body moving into and through the hit like we do with professional players.
1: So you're saying you shouldn't keep a a rigid, straight?
2: Well, Well, I think the point of this is you have two hands and two arms, and they both have a responsibility in the motion. Yeah. You know, there's been a lot of – Hogan talked about the hit of the golf ball at the bottom of the swing, and Tommy Bolt said you hold it with your left hand so you can hit it as hard as you can with your right and not hook it. You know, it's really a two-sided game. You can feel your left side is leading, and there's a way to play that way. You can feel your right side being the hitting side. Obviously, Jimmy Ballard popularized the fire the right side.
1: Yeah. When I first met you, I told you that I was a victim of online golf instruction. Am I not the only person that's victimized by looking at too many instructional videos and having too many things in my head?
2: Yeah, there's so much information out there, and everybody's got the secret that, you know, and I'm sure some some of it is valid for some players, but you have to know where you are to start with to know if what you're reading applies to your situation.
1: Yeah. Do you see a lot of content online that you you know, designate as just totally wrong or or detrimental to an amateur golfer? Do you see a lot of that?
2: I don't spend much time reading online stuff, uh, to be honest with you.
1: Okay. (laughs) So before I leave this, because I'm trying to get a free lesson out of you here, Dave. Sure. So if you could give like the average golfer one swing thought as he stands over the ball, whether it be a driver or iron or anything else, what would that be?
2: Well, I think the biggest thing that's overlooked is you have a club head or a club face that you're trying to take back and send the ball forward with. So there's not enough attention on the club head and club face itself and how it's controlled, which is ultimately some sense through your hands, whether they're active or passive, but how they're making the club face up and hit through the ball. I've kind of identified four things that every golfer is trying to do when they hit a ball and there's a big conflict within that. Everyone wants to hit the ball straight, they want to hit it far, they want to hit it see it go in the air and they're insecure with contact. So, a big conflict in resolving those issues. People trying to hit it straight or hanging on with their arms, right. which kills distance. And especially if they're insecure with contact, we see a lot of that, you know, extreme tightening up coming into impact. But I think the biggest thing, if you thought about the face of the club and not just hitting the ball, but hitting the ball in a forward direction toward your target. That doesn't mean straight forward toward your target. Okay. (laughs) so it's kind of interesting reading books of older teachers, how their word usage had so much more connotation to motion, whereas now with video, you know, teachers can say, well, you're here, you need to be there. And, you know, I think we can definitely get people too tied up with being too specific. Yeah. And I see that a lot, even with tour players, you know, grinding with these real specific places they're trying to be. And, you know, I always, so people assume if you make a perfect backswing, you're going to hit good shots. And I always relate to well, if we take Jim Furyk and Ray Floyd three feet off the ball, their club heads are eight feet apart, and they both won U.S. Opens, yeah. the backswing is not the most critical part of playing golf. Yeah. So I end up putting a lot of emphasis on what's happening going forward through the hitting area and toward the target.
1: Yeah. You mentioned Hogan earlier. Are you a fan of Hogan's? Huge fan. Um, yeah.
2: Yeah, I mean, greatest ball striker ever lived.
1: But his swing was really flat and very different from what we call the modern swing, right?
2: All I would tell you is nobody controlled the golf ball like he did from the standpoint of trajectory, spin, just overall control. I mean, the, the guys today are, you know, obviously they're great players. It's a big power game. But you look at the scores. Guys were shooting way back when they had equipment that wasn't nearly as good. Golf balls that weren't nearly as good They're still shooting. Yeah. were shooting the same scores.
1: Yeah, that's true. Let me ask you a couple of questions about your playing career, because you've got plenty of trophies sitting on your mantle. Are there any one or a couple of those recognitions that are most meaningful to you?
2: Well, I guess what's most memorable was the year I had in 86 when I, I had a stretch there where I, I won the State Open, the Met Open, the Nissan, and the PGA. And I just remember, you know, the sports writers were asking me, nobody's ever done this. How are you feeling feeling some pressure to perform. And it's kind of interesting how my mind took it because it's kind of like just knowing golf. It was like I was on a nice ride. I'm just going to keep riding it until it ends. So with each win, I put less pressure on myself and was able to continue performing well.
1: I've always wondered about this. When you reach a level of play that you are at on the tour and both when you're playing well on the state level, are you thinking about your swing? I mean, you're thinking, okay, I got to take the club back this way or I got to complete my turn or, or is it more just you're focused on where you want the ball to go exclusively?
2: Often there would have been maybe a little bit of a key, but when I was playing my best, I could kind of see the shot and like Freddie Couples said, just set up and just felt like the ball was right there. Yeah, yeah. You know, so – I could actually feel the swing before I I had to make it. So there was, at my best, there was no thinking.
1: Okay, well, Freddie's a master of no thinking. He's a master of that, yeah. (laughs) So have you ever thought of going back, playing on the senior champions tour at any point? Did you ever think consider that? I could
2: never get excited about that. I did attempt to qualify one year and missed it first stage. And then I broke my hip skiing that year, so my right hip. So that was the end of my playing going forward. It healed crooked, and I played poorly for six years before I had it replaced.
1: My definition of skiing is spitting in the face of death. So do you still ski?
2: No, I haven't skied since then.
1: (laughs) Okay. How did you manage stress? Was that just something... Well first of all did your days on the tour help you on the state level cuz you kind of you were playing at a much higher level of stress then so was it easier for you
2: Well initially because you know I felt like I was ahead of them cuz of my experience so I you know was pretty comfortable playing tournaments when I first went to Wingfoot won the Met Open my first year when I was at Wingfoot it just seemed like something I should do
1: Yeah were you always a good putter
2: no, I went – I struggled with the yips, and that's where probably it was I'm trying to think. It was probably 1984 playing tournaments in the winter. I had a bullseye, and so I got to the point if it was a foot or two from the hole, I was three feet even. I was putting it in lefty just casually. And then one tournament I just decided, okay, I'm going to putt left-handed and shot 69 in the first round and kind of was in the tournament and had – four or five footers on the 10th or 11th holes on the backside and made those both and then hit a couple bad shots, didn't win. But all of a sudden, my stomach settled down, my brain quieted down, and I could make a stroke. So I putted for 30 years left-handed.
1: You're kidding. So you're a right-handed golfer who putts left-handed? Yeah. For 30 years. That's with a bullseye putter?
2: (laughs) Yeah. So... (laughs) It relates not just to golf. I first yipped when I was 15, but playing ping pong, I had trouble hitting a forehand, so I would always cut my forehand back, and I had a good backhand smash. My senior year in high school, I couldn't make a lay in right hand. I had to go to the left side. Huh. My right hand would just kind of spasm on me.
1: That's pretty interesting.
2: Yeah, so it carried over to golf. and uh,
1: That's amazing. Do you know of anyone else that's ever done that that's Played right-handed and putted left-handed?
2: Yeah, they've had some tour players have done that. Nota Begay putted both right and left, you know. Okay. I'm trying to think of the other. I can't think of his name.
1: You'd need a double-faced putter like a bullseye to do that, though, right? I mean, because you can't carry. But yeah, you
2: to putt both ways. Uh, there was a good player that played the senior tour from the Northwest, Rick Acton. He was a right-handed player, putted left-handed. Okay. So there, there's been you. some history of this. Okay. Not a lot, never- but. Wow, I but also, you didn't, back when I was playing, nobody, you didn't see any saw or pencil grips. I mean, yeah. the big controversial one was when somebody went cross-handed. Yeah, yeah. And then they quit calling it that, and they started talking about it being left-hand low.
1: And they didn't have the long-shafted putters back then either, did they?
2: No. You know, Snead was, uh, well, Bob Duden from Oregon was the first with the croquet, and then they took that away from him. Right. You know, Sneed followed him and then they went to side saddle.
1: Yeah. Let's talk about your uh, golf club. When did you start thinking about that? The whole, when did the dream begin that you wanted your own course?
2: Well, I'd always wanted to design a golf course and I heard about someone trying to develop a golf course and I got in touch with him and said I'd be interested in being involved. And he had an architect and I said, I don't think we need to spend the money. I can design it. So, And that was probably in nineteen ninety-five and we went through I can't even tell you what we went through to get this thing (laughs) on track. I mean, here was a project that supposedly the local community wanted. It took us six years to get town approval. Yeah. They didn't even have an ordinance with how to judge a golf course. We had to help them write that. And then the Larry Byer of the dp made the comment well that course will get built over my dead body great yeah it's nice that you know golf courses are very environmentally friendly i mean we look at all the ball fields we built for kids a golf course is a ball field for adults what's i never could understand the opposition to it i guess some people felt it was an elitist sport but i think that's changing significantly
1: Do you think there was any pressure from, because you're pretty close to Flanders, uh, which is a pretty popular public course. Do you think some of the politicians didn't want the competition?
2: I never sensed that. We just, I mean, I'd get a routing done and then they passed pass the Ridgeline Ordinance. I'd have to change the routing again. I probably did eight routings before we finally settled in. Then we just got started and then they passed the Highlands legislation and we were starting on the first three holes with the irrigation pond, which were holes 13, 16, and 17. And some guy from the DEP shows up and says, if you don't stop what you're doing, you're going to be fined 25000 a day. So, you know, if you're Donald Trump or President Trump, you just keep going and battle away. Former, go,
1: former President Trump.
2: Yeah, former, former president, yes. So and then we went through probably four years of litigation against the state, and finally, through an arbitrator, got it back online because we had done enough to qualify to be exempted from the Highlands legislation.
1: Somebody wanted this course not to be built. I mean, your tenacity that you're using getting the Wingfoot job, I mean, that pales in comparison to what you did here, correct?
2: Well, yes, since I got started in 95, and we didn't open until 2011. Wow. That's a lot of years.
1: Yeah. A lot of money spent. A lot of money, yeah. Where did that money come from? Was that out of your own
2: pocket? A lot of it out of my own pocket. Other partners, we kept borrowing and borrowing. And so...
1: What was the lowest point when you were ready to throw in the towel?
2: Was there one? No, I, you know, again, like I said, I never looked at it that way. It was just another hurdle to overcome.
1: Yeah. Now, there were different – was there plans for a pool at the club and tennis courts, or did they have to get – um,
2: We always said when we got to 200 full members, we would canvas the members and see as far as a pool, but always figured on it being a golf club. So, you know, we have a number of members, but we still haven't quite achieved 200 full members.
1: What is the number currently?
2: Probably full about 170. and seventy. Yeah.
1: Okay. Well, listen, you put my name on the locker a couple of weeks ago, so now I feel obligated to become a full member. There you go. I told Boomer that. So you mentioned Tillinghast before. I mean, what architects, did he have an influence on your design or were there others that you uh...
2: I think with all the courses I've played, you know, there would be things I would remember, things I liked. I always, first of all, I don't like the concept of like an island green. It's You know, I guess it's kind of cool, but you know, they once had the worst golfers playing that 17th hole, and one guy finally had to putt around the around the outside to make a 120. So, as much as possible, I wanted to allow access to the greens on the ground for players less skilled, and especially for women who can't carry the ball. So, I didn't like the idea of forced carries, and also. Green size matching bowl length for the most part. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of the modern thing with a lot of architects is big wide fairways, huge greens with a lot of undulations. I'm more into smaller greens, target golf.
1: Yeah. I like the course because it's not tricked up. I mean, what you see is what you get. And I think it's a fair course. I haven't figured out your greens yet, but that'll, hopefully that'll come with some You have to experience. play more. Yeah, I know.
2: I know. Well, now, I will of- tell you that was... My goal starting out was to make every whole individual and unique in its own right and every green setting different. And as far as green designs, I would just sketch out what I thought the green should look like. And then Pete Hayes, one of the partners who did all the shaping as well as having input into the design would, you know, start shaping the green complex and we'd look at it and make, you know, adjustments as we went.
1: I mean, would you actually stand there and go, no, put another lump there or, yeah. you know? Okay. Yeah. So it's almost like a work of art. I mean, it's a painting almost, right? In real, in real form.
2: Yeah, I would say.
1: Would you imagine different pin positions as you created
2: the greens? Yeah, a little bit, I suppose.
1: Was it tough to acquire the land? You did the first, not the back nine first, correct?
2: Well, that's because that's where irrigation pond was. So you kind of want to work from your irrigation outward so to speak. Right. You need to get water to the holes as they're graded and seeded. How much yardage do you have? Total yardage from the back? Yeah. Uh, we can probably stretch to about 7,200.
1: Okay. What's the slope rating from the...
2: I don't know, since we've added a few peas, if it's actually been done. I thought it was like 134.
1: Okay. How does that work? Does the USGA... Do you have to request that they come out and rate the course? Yeah,
2: usually it'd be somebody from the State Golf Association, and they will bring like four or five people play it. So it's it's still subjective to some extent. They will look at, you know, issues out of bounds, water, that sort of thing, and and kind of weigh each hole what they think it would play to.
1: Yeah. Is there any room for negotiation if you don't like the rating they give you? Can you go back out with them and give them a contrary view? Does that ever...
2: I suppose it would be. I think most people just accept it because they're, you know, there are handicapping groups. So yeah, if they rate it too easy and it actually plays harder, your handicap travels better. Yeah.
1: Do you have a philosophy on green speed? I mean, I've played on courses that it's unfair that the greens are so fast, it's silly. You'll four and five putt and then you'll just pick up.
2: I think that has gotten overdone you know, players wanting U.S. Open speeds all the time, or at least a small portion. You know, I want the the greens to run, stint meter-wise, probably around 10 on an average, which means going downhill and down slopes. It's going to be quick. I uh, Like we, last year, they were about nine and a half on the stint meter, and i put it on a slope running down a slope, and it would run out 25 feet. Yeah, so if you got them up to 12, you'd have some unputtable pin placement.
1: Who's the greenskeeper uh, at the club?
2: And one of our partners is the green superintendent, Peter Hayes. Superintendent.
1: Oh, Peter Hayes, okay. But he, and he's a partner. He's actually been there from the outset. Yes. Great. Okay. And he what, what was his he, he was a farmer before he started the club?
2: Oh, he's done all sorts of things. He's done a lot of coursework, a lot of irrigation work on golf courses.
1: Okay. Hardscaping and and that sort of yeah,
2: thing. Yeah, but he, you know, he has his superintendent's license, and you know, he's certainly learned on the job. But he understands ground and turf, and we've certainly got a, a ways to go on a few of the holes. We're still trying to clear out more trees up on between eight and nine. We need to keep pounding sand into some of the upper fairways, especially number seven.
1: Okay. A couple more questions on the course. Is there something you know now that you wish you had known at the outset of the Black Oak project, either in terms of how to deal with politicians or <laughs> course design? or?
2: <laughs> that's kind of an oxymoron, how to deal with politicians. <laughs> okay. Um, no, I think, you know, course design, if you have a a little bit of an imagination, a knowledge of golf and how people play—it's not rocket science. Yeah, I mean, you take Pine Valley was designed by an amateur. Yeah, that's true. Um, you know, Pete Dye was an insurance guy before it became, you know, a golf course architect. And then his wife was joined him, and yeah, you know, so uh, I think a lot of it is there's not enough consideration when they bring in tour pros to be a name designer or put their name with a project that they're always looking to make a course too difficult. Like I said, I think, you know, staying away from force carries for so ladies and weaker players still can play without, you know, and have some fun.
1: Yeah. Speaking on behalf of all weaker players, I appreciate the gesture. So what's the greatest compliment that's ever been paid to the course? either by a review or an individual, that you kind of said, yeah, okay. So it's been all worthwhile, all the pain.
2: Well, one of the best comments was when we first opened, some lady played and had her best score ever. Okay. So, you know, I love to hear that. It's easy to make a golf course hard. It's easy to make a golf hole hard. But to make it fair and playable for all ability levels is the real trick, I think.
1: Yeah, yeah. Mission accomplished. I just have a couple more questions on the personal side. Can you give us some insight to whatever life you might have outside of Black Oak? Family, kids, grandkids, other than skiing that you give given up, do you do anything other than play golf?
2: <laughs> Teach well, golf. <laughs> I'm an avid reader. Okay. I can give you a lot of authors that I like.
1: Fiction or nonfiction? Oh,
2: or- fiction. Yeah. Fiction. I read for escape. I get lost in a book. You know. Okay. Yeah, Lee Child, John Sanford, Jeffrey Deaver, Baldacci—you know—I go on and on. Uh, Michael Connolly. you know. So I, I mean, I probably of those guys I listed, I probably read 150 books by wow. them at least. Wow. Yeah, I get nobody going reads- in the winter time. I'll read one every two days.
1: Wow, nobody reads anymore. Didn't anybody tell you that?
2: Well, they go online. I still like to yeah. hold that book in my hand. I,
1: I do too, and I have twenty books of uh, twenty boxes of books up in the attic that I have to throw out because nobody wants them, and you know they get moldy and everything. Yeah, else. but I'm not an e-reader guy either.
2: So, what about kids, grandkids? Yeah, uh, no kids. No, okay. just uh, okay. dog and a cat. Okay. Do you travel at all? Not really much anymore. Just. Florida's vacation time, six months in the winter. So, except last year I was teaching all winter. So, not so much investment's holiday.
1: So, here, the final questions What would you say has had the greatest influence in your life in terms of, you know, how you look at the world and face challenges? I mean, where did your tenacity come from, for example?
2: Well, I think, you know, it was just different growing up when I grew up in a small town. Both my parents worked. So, from the time I was, you know, in the fifth grade, I was riding my bike a mile to school. You just—I rode my bike to Little League in the summertime. Came home, fixed my own sandwich. Rode my bike to the community pool. Spent all afternoon there. You develop so much more self-reliance. You know, in the era I grew up in, I think that's something kids kind of miss. Or it's kind of the nature of things, too. I, I you know, there's just a real value to. Old school values to growing up in a smaller town to some extent.
1: Yeah. Any words of advice for people that are thinking about either you know pursuing golf as a player or as a business person based on the lessons and you've had a lot of them that you've learned.
2: Wow, that's a that's the hardest question <laughs> you ask me. Why did you let save that? I was
1: uh, yeah, saving it to the end. All right. <laughs> uh,
2: well, you know, since. We've had this problem with COVID. You know, golf has really kind of had a real boon here. Yeah. I do think, you know, we have a lot of young kids who enjoy golf, who want to get into the golf business and are going to school under the PGM program. And I'm not a big endorser of that because there's a finite number of golf courses and a finite number of positions out there. And yeah. so I would tell them to get a business degree and give them – sells options. Yeah.
1: A friend of mine is a club pro and, you know, he went through that grind and I think it's even tougher now. I mean, pros that are in great spots don't leave. They'll stay there for 20, 30 years and longer.
2: Well, and that's the, the value of the PGA professional has kind of been lost too, especially as corporate America has gotten in the golf. It's just, you know, it's all a numbers game to them.
1: Well, Dave, listen, this has been great. I've learned a lot of stuff, Um, notably the fact that you play righty and putt lefty. I I want to see you do that. I'm going to try that, actually. I'm not sure I'll be as successful as as you are. But I appreciate your time and uh, sharing your stories. And thank you. I hope
2: to see you out at the club. Well, my pleasure. Thank you, Gordon.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Golf Yeah! featuring another success story from the business side of golf. Maybe it's time to get more serious about making golf the center of your life, not just the highlight of your weekend. Head over to golfyad.com for more great content, including show notes, testimonials, and links to valuable resources. That's G-O-L-F-Y-E-A-H.com.